strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight, Robin, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story about Belgium. Okay. What do you think of when you think of Belgium? Beer. Beer. Waffles. Chocolate. Right, but what you probably I love don't how you're think like, oh, food, is, but no, you chose beer. Um, <laughs> Belgian waffles is not even in my mind at all, which is reasonable. But what you probably don't think of is atrocities, war crimes, mass murdering. No, I would normally think that it's a very peaceful country. Right, they're not really known as uh, one of the big bads. No, so I was made to read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness in school. Did you ever have to read this book? No. So if you never had to read it, um, it is a very shocking story. And I remember reading it in. Can I ask you what grade you were, you were in when you were asked I to think, read this? I think I was in 12th grade. I think I was in AP English. Okay. Yeah. Well, my, yeah, my, my 12th grade English teacher didn't really care what we did. I actually don't think I even read in 12th grade. Like at all. That's just a shame. That's a shame on so many levels. I don't remember. I think I read science books to, to get the formulas. But other than that, I really don't remember ever doing anything like that in English. Man, my senior year was tough. I had a lot of AP classes. I had a lot of hard work to do. Um, my AP English teacher used to sing songs a lot. Anyway, he was a little bit of a weird dude, but he was all right. Cheers to Mr. Tidwell, who made me read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Anyway, if you've ever read this book, you know that it centers around a voyage into the heart of Africa, known as the Congo Free State. The backdrop of this novel took place during one of history's most horrific mass murderings. This is the story of King Leopold II of Belgium, who can be affectionately remembered as one of history's most prolific mass murderers. When Leopold ascended the Belgian throne in 1865, he did so with plans to make Belgium into a world power. He wanted them to be prosperous and to have their own colonies. You have to remember, this is, uh, you know, imperialist times. So it's all about acquiring foreign lands and taking over lands that are perfectly well inhabited by entire societies and civilizations and suddenly saying that they belong to European countries. I digress. (laughs) Leopold wholeheartedly believed that overseas colonies were the key to a country's greatness, and he worked tirelessly to acquire colonial territory for Belgium. While imperialism was a priority for Leopold, the same cannot be said for his people. And so essentially they were like, cool, you want to have territories? Go for it. We're not super interested and we're not going to really be a part of this. But he was... He really felt that this was the right thing to do for his country, for himself. You know, he needed some big dick power. So (laughs) he, okay, it's just strange because no, that was perfect. That was absolutely perfect because he's a king of a country, and the entire governing parties are like, I don't know if that's a really good idea for our small European country to really get involved in these imperialist endeavors. You know, with the likes of, you know, the the big boys, right? Like we're talking about like dealing with France, Germany, England, the United States. Like Belgium is not on the level of. Yeah, it just sounded like he needed something to prove, you know, like he was he was lacking in something and he chose this to, to kind of make a. Imperialism was King Leopold's big dick energy. 
1884, there was something that was referred to as the Congo Conference. And at this conference, basically, Europeans got together and decided to break up Africa into pieces and give it away to various European nations. So this is where Leopold actually acquired the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And the whole idea, you know, he's there at this conference and he's telling the people at the conference that his plan is to create a better life for the people that live there because Europeans viewed, you know, African natives as savages. So he's at this conference and they're dividing this up and he's promising them these like great humanitarian efforts. But while Leopold did, you know, acquire this territory, the Belgian state wanted to basically keep their hands clean. So they loaned Leopold the money to do it on his own. Loaned him the money. Okay. Leopold, with a loan from the country of Belgium, embarked on his imperialist dreams. So it was not technically Belgium that did this, but rather their king acting as a private citizen that took over the Democratic Republic of the Congo, renaming it the Congo Free State. Though Leopold had convinced the conference that his motives were pure, they were anything but. And the Congo held very valuable resources that he had his sights set on. He had his sights set on extracting it and making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Long before he gained control of the region, he had been exploring it. Not personally, mind you. King Leopold II himself actually never set foot in the Congo. I hate that. You know, all these Big-ass people who want to make some type of change to better fit themselves and ruin a bunch of people in the process, but yet don't dare to step on the actual land that they are willing to pretty much take over. Yes, I mean, Henry Ford. Yeah. We just recently talked about. And, I mean, we've seen this in numerous. And that's why I'm pissed off. It's like... You know what? If you're gonna do this, you you bet you go you go there and you do it face to face. It's ridiculous because get your hands dirty, motherfucker. Yeah, they don't want their hands dirty, but they want yeah they want the money and they want to force European white ideals, civilization, religion, and culture onto people who already have rich heritage. <sighs> but I digress. You know what? The name of this episode is going to be called "But I Digress." He enlisted the services of a Welsh explorer named Henry Morton Stanley by 1879. So this is well before the conference, five, six years before the conference. You say Morton Stanley or Morgan Stanley? Morton. Stanley had been exploring the region for years and had penned the work through the Dark Continent. He had been unable to elicit British help in developing the region and therefore fell in with Leopold. From August 1879 to June of 1884, Stanley had been in the Congo Basin, where he built a road from the lower Congo up to the Stanley Pool and launched steamers up the river. So for years, this man had been there, you know, setting up road systems, a network of people that he could, you know, utilize and pay to help him explore this region. While exploring the Congo for Leopold, Stanley had set up treaties with local chiefs and native leaders. Few to none of these tribal leaders had any realistic idea of what they were signing. The documents gave over all rights to their respective pieces of land to King Leopold II. With Stanley's help, Leopold was able to claim a great area along the Congo River, and many military posts were established. 
So by the time Leopold was legally given control in the Congo in 1885, he was ready. He had all his ducks in a row. He had military outposts. He had ways to travel. He had well-established treaties. He already had essentially control of the entire area. But he was never, ever there. Never there. Leopold used the title of sovereign king as ruler of the Congo Free State. In the Free State, Leopold exercised total personal control without much delegation to subordinates. African chiefs played an important role in the administration by implementing government orders within their communities. So as a sovereign king, what Leopold says goes, and he essentially utilized the chiefs to do his dirty work. Throughout much of its existence, however, the free state presence in the territory was sparse at best and only truly controlled a small amount of land in the region. So while there is this presence, it's not huge considering the vastness of the actual piece of property. In 1900, there were just 3,000 white people in the Congo, of whom only half were Belgian. The colony was perpetually short of administrative staff and officials, who numbered only between 700 and 1,500. In order to gain control of this area, Leopold had made many promises, one of which was a pledge that he made to suppress the East African slave trade, which was predominantly ran by Arabic nations at the time. He also promised to promote humanitarian policies, to guarantee free trade within the colony, and impose no import taxes for 20 years, and encourage philanthropic and scientific enterprises. But very quickly after he took ownership of the colony, Leopold began his reign of terror. First, he asserted the rights of ownership over all vacant lands throughout the Congo Territory. To be considered vacant meant that the land did not have a domicile upon it or any area that was not being actively cultivated for food. So there was very little land that was being actively cultivated and for crops. And there was very little land that had, you know, set up homes upon it. So now all the land that did not have those things belonged to the state, which meant that it belonged to Leopold because he was the state. The free state was intended, above all, to be profitable for its investors, and for Leopold in particular. Of course. Its finances were frequently precarious. Early reliance on ivory exports did not make as much money as hoped, and the colonial administration was frequently in debt, nearly defaulting on a number of its loans on many occasions. But a boom in demand for natural rubber in the 1890s, however, ended these problems as the colonial state was able to force Congolese males to work as forced labor collecting wild rubber, which could then be exported to Europe and North America. Mm -hmm. And though Leopold had promised free trade, he quickly limited merchant involvement directly with the natives. And here it is, the heart of the matter, and that is rubber. And remember, all these trees... All over the entire Congo Free State. Pretty much any area of land that has trees upon it belongs to who? Leopold. The state, which is Leopold. Rubber was such a commodity. Oh, my God. It was yeah. like... So the demand was for rubber was growing daily. Yeah. Many new 19th century inventions, such as the bicycle, required rubber. Not to mention the plethora of industrial parts, such as tubing, mm -hmm. hoses, springs, washers 
diaphragms, creating a worldwide demand for rubber. So basically, as the Industrial Revolution is really booming and factories are really coming to life, and then we have the advent of the motor vehicle. So you just, you know, the demand is through the roof. And as we know, demand will push the supply chain and not always in the most humanitarian way. This push for rubber led to extreme hardship and devastating exploitation throughout the African colonies, and most especially in Leopold's colony. So we'll talk a little bit about rubber and how it's harvested. So you can just kind of have like a frame of reference of what we're dealing with. African rubber comes from two sources, trees and vines. Rubber vines were less durable than trees and were fragile and easily killed. Areas in which rubber was harvested from vines were constantly threatened by the exhaustion of supplies. But, unlike the vines, rubber trees were hardy and tolerated frequent tapping. If the trees were overtapped, they merely went dormant, but they did not die. And generally, within five years, an overused tree would once again produce rubber. In order to get longevity from a tree... They began by climbing high into the tree and starting at the top and working their way down with a series of shallow cuts. While some areas developed methods that did not damage the trees at all and were able to create a sustainable product. So eventually they'll start from the top and work their way down. And then once that tree can't produce any more rubber or the substance that produces rubber, then it leaves and it remains dormant until five years and they can go back there and redo the whole tree again. Yeah, so they sort of cycle through them or, you know, work their way work their way down just one side and then down the other side and then down the other side. So maybe by the time they're done with one singular tree, a year or two has passed and it's only dormant for a year before it's ready, that top side. You know, like yeah. they had systems. They were smart. And this isn't, you know, Leopold and Belgians being smart. This is people who are native to the area. But the never-ending quest for rubber led to boundary disputes, especially among local people. Perpetual war broke out over access to rubber harvesting territories as people crossed indigenous boundaries looking for rubber. So there were two systems by which rubber trade evolved. One was the free market, where rubber was bought and sold under agreements based on the world prices of rubber. So basically, you know, rubber is going for 65 cents an ounce. So it makes sense to get a lot of it. And then if, you know, rubber is only going for 20 cents an ounce, it makes sense to like be like, well, it's not worth so much right now. Let's do something else. So in those systems, when prices are high, the production... Because it it doesn't expire, right? It's It's... Exactly. It's not a shelf life kind of situation where they will never not need it. You know, they're, they're just holding it there for, you know what, when the demand goes up, we're ready to, you know, we're ready to go. So in the free market system, when prices are high, production is high. And when the prices are slow, production slows. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Okay. Prices are low. It's not worth really, you know, getting into it. Let's just focus on something else right now or harvest it and save it and don't sell it. Mm-hmm. So cool. So that's the free trade system. Also, it's honestly, it's great to have inventory of something that doesn't expire because technology then was constantly changing. And it's, you know, I, I, I know that with, with vehicles and even bicycles, you know, rubber tires and rubber hoses, rubber gaskets. Like, who knows? Tomorrow, some might be like, you know what? I want to make this out of rubber. Who can I call? 
you know, and it's just like, oh, we just so happen to have all of this rubber here ready, like, like waiting. So let's meet and we can, you know, it's like, it was just one of those things where it was in, it was in such high demand, but since technology was always growing, it could be used at any moment. But given the free market system in a situation like that, the price would go up Mm -hmm. because the demand would go up. But in the Congo free state, they ran under a little bit different uh, style. And they ran under what was called concession companies. So essentially, these companies would purchase concessions or rather permission to harvest rubber in the territory. I, I think that's correct. I think they should definitely ask permission to enter that territory. Right. But they're not asking permission from the natives. They're asking permission from Leopold. From Leopold. Great. So they're paying the state for permission to come in and harvest. So this is the system that is going to go in uh, into the Congo under King Leopold. In this type of system, the actual harvesters are not paid based on market value, and rubber was gathered based on forced labor systems. So when the prices dropped, the businesses just basically demanded more rubber so that the same profit margin could be made. And that quota was to be attained by any means necessary. So even if it's 20 cents an ounce, we want to make the same as we did at 60, so you just need to get three times as much. Oh, no. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's kind of the story. So rubber agents collected the names of all the men in the villages under their control. Each man was given a quota of rubber to collect every two weeks. The rubber agents who worked for the concession company signed two-year contracts. Their goal was to make a lot of money and return home as quickly as possible. So you remember the explorer, Henry Morton Stanley, Mm -hmm. and that he got these tribal chiefs to sign these treaties. These treaties, of course, were completely unintelligible to the chiefs and would not hold up in any European court. So therefore, they only served Leopold. These documents actually gave Leopold complete control over the land and the people upon them. Based on these treaties that Stanley acquired with some 450 chiefs, Leopold had control of nearly 1 million square miles of land inhabited by 20 million people that he could use as his personal workforce. So now that you kind of have an idea of the system and what we're dealing with, you now understand that we're dealing with a man who has uninhibited control over a huge amount of land, people, and resources. So now we're going to get into the heart of how Leopold went about pillaging the Congo. So Leopold wants to sell rubber to create a profit for himself and for his financial backers. He'll do whatever it takes. So he developed a system to maximize production. And that system was known as the red rubber system. Labor was forced by the administration as taxation. This created a slave society. So essentially, everyone in the Congo is given a quota. And that is not, you're not going to be paid for it. That is just what you owe the state. You must give me this much rubber every two weeks. I'm not going to pay you for your work. That is just what you have to pay me to continue to live here. So it's a, a type of taxation. And like I said, this created a slave society as Leopold's company became increasingly dependent on forced labor for the collection of rubber. To ensure understanding and compliance, the state recruited a number of black officials to organize the labor efforts. 
but when quotas were set by the state, they were done so based on the amount it would take to make a profit margin rather than the actual amount of rubber that was available to be gathered. They utilized any means they wished to increase production and profits with no interference from the state. There were two particular concession companies, a beer and Enversois, and these two companies were known to be particularly harsh in the way they treated their workers. For their work, laborers were given cheap items such as cloth, beads, salt, and perhaps a knife. On one occasion, a chief was compensated for the labor of his people with slaves. Dissenters were beaten or whipped with a chicote, which was a whip made of hippopotamus hide that came to a corkscrew tip that pierced the flesh. And it was said that 20 blows from a chicote would cause a man to lose consciousness. Oh, my God. When men refused to work or did not meet their quota, hostages were taken to ensure prompt collection. So hostages such as their children. Families, yeah. Their wives, their mothers. If they refused, men were sent to burn their home village. So while these men are out working, let's say they did not meet their quota and they would be like, well, we're just going to go to your hometown, your village, and we're going to burn it to the ground. So either give us what we want or that's what's going to happen. And they did those things. So I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that, you know, someone that was whipped was put to work the next day. Of course they were. So right there, he is um, limited on, you know, on, on the way that he's working throughout that day. And so if he doesn't get his quota in... So then it's just like a turnover. It's like, you know, so now this poor guy is working himself literally to death in order to pre- to prevent them attacking his family and his home. Meanwhile, he was just vitalized in an awful way. And so it's just, it's a reoccurring torture over and over again. I'll whip you here. You'll feel pain. The next day I want you to work your hardest, you know, and it's it's all about protecting their family. It's all about making that quota. And these people are doing whatever they can to make this quota. But sometimes, I mean, even today, in today's world, making a quota, making a deadline, is it's difficult. Yeah, it's like... So if the rubber doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. You want, you want to talk back then about something, a product. You want me to just drain this tree. It is tapped. I cannot yeah. do that. Like, you are asking me for the impossible, and they're being tortured because they can't get the numbers that they want. And that's heartbreaking. It's also tragic on a few different levels because you think about the men who are out gathering this rubber. Mm-hmm. And where are they not? Home. Right. They're not home. They're not there with their families and their loved ones. So it means that pretty much all of the young men who would do the predominance of the labor in a village, including just basic repairs. Oh, maintenance. Just regular maintenance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every day. Yeah. You know, gathering of, you know, hunting, maintenance, just carrying wood, lifting, and just the upkeep. So that means that who is left there to do it? The woman. It's women, yeah. the elderly, and children. So, you know, it's just crummy. Anyway, it, it doesn't no, get no, better. No, you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's like, you know. <sighs> so this is not going to get better. Okay. Okay. It is not. I, I promise. So the men who were in charge there were called the Force Publique. And they were the colonial military, and that was established in 1885. 
and was originally comprised of white soldiers, but was quickly staffed with black recruits from Bengala and many freed slaves from the Eastern Congo. By 1900, the force public had a force of 19,000 men. In addition to the army, rubber companies employed their own militias, which often worked in tandem with the force public to enforce their rule. So I kind of briefly glossed over the mass killings, atrocities, brutality. So you kind of know that that was going on, but it doesn't do this topic any justice to gloss over it. So I'm going to talk a little bit more specifically now. And it's going to be tough. It's not going to be easy to hear and it might be triggering for people. So just know that, you know, the the topic that we're really about to get into is going to get, this is where the darkness comes. The heart of darkness, if you will. So each laborer had their quota and failure to meet that quota was punishable by death. And that task was to be carried out by the force publique. But they were also held accountable for each bullet that they used. You see, the state and the companies did not want these soldiers to have their own ammunition for silly things such as hunting for food or just what they were most concerned about was that they would stockpile and mutiny against the state. So for each bullet used, they had to produce the hand of the dead man that they used that bullet on. Oh, no. Oh, oh god so it's like so uh, so it's like a, a receipt it's like every time they yes. use it they had to present a receipt so frequently rubber quotas were paid at least partly in chopped off hands sometimes the hands were collected by the soldiers of the force public sometimes by the villagers themselves but now okay so, so now you're telling me that if someone uses... So these are the men who are essentially the force that is yeah. supposed to enforce these quotas. But even they are not trusted by the higher-ups. It is believed because they are of native descent that basically they're like one second away from mutiny and then like just killing all the white men and like taking over. So they can't let them have too many bullets. So for every bullet that gets used, they need proof that it was used on a person and not for some, you know. A trade or, yeah. Or certainly nothing that would give them okay. any additional All comfort. Right. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, so while most times the hands were uh, collected by the force public, there were many times that the villagers themselves would gather the hands. And there were even small wars between villages just to gather hands. Since the rubber quotas were so unrealistic, they would rather go to war with a neighboring village and cut a bunch of hands off to keep the bullet so that when the force public came to get the quota, they would have a, oh my God. they would be like, well, we we couldn't do it, but we have the sack of hands. So then at least you can say that, you know, you killed 20 men. But but these guys would go to another village and and trap and capture another um, a- another person and cut off their hand just so they can save that bullet and have a receipt for when they eventually are being audited for their bullet ranks, right? So it's like, you know... It's Absolutely. Like, so now... Absolutely. So now they just 
left someone with only one hand who's still alive at, a, at another site. Maybe or maybe not. So, But that person still needs to produce their quota with one yes. hand. That's fucked up. God. But it wasn't so it wasn't just the force publique is what I'm saying. They did not. They were not the only people who went and got the hands. So you'd be like, OK, well, so Monday's quota day. Mm-hmm. Our village doesn't have enough for the quota. So we're going to go three miles away to the next village. And we're going to start a war with them and we're going to get into a fight and kill some people or just at least take them and take their hands so that that way when the force public comes, we can give them the hands and say, well, you know, we killed these people. And at least then they have those hands to give to the higher up. That's awful, though, because that just also makes you think that no matter what, someone's going to die. Yes. It's like it, it's not it's not about a quota on, oh, you know, I want you to go out there and I want you to motivate people and get them to do all this stuff, whatever. No, there's a band of people that have just a certain amount of bullets that are needed to kill people who don't meet the standards that they are expecting. And in receipt, they have to produce said hands to whoever they have to kind of report to and say, okay, well, here's my quota for this month or for this week or whatever it is. So that person's job is to kill. That's all their that's all their job is is to go from line to line, from person to person, from group to group. And minimally their job is just to cut hands off all the time. So the point is that these rubber quotas were just completely unrealistic. It was it was not possible for a group of men working twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, to gather the quantity of rubber no. from this area. So a Catholic priest quotes a man named Suambe, speaking of a hated state official named Leon Fives, who ran a district along the river of about 500 kilometers. What he said of this man is, all blacks saw this man as the devil of the equator. From all the bodies killed in the field, you had to cut off the hands. He wanted to see the number of hands cut off by each soldier who would bring them to him in baskets. A village which refused to provide rubber would be completely swept clean. In baskets? Like it's a freaking basket of muffins? God damn it. As a young man, I saw Fevez's soldiers then guarding a village in Boyeca. I saw the man take a net, put ten arrested natives in it, attach big stones to the net, and make it tumble down into the river. Rubber causes these torments. That's why we no longer want to hear its name spoken. Soldiers made young men kill or rape their own mothers and sisters. One junior officer described a raid to punish a village that had protested. The officer in command ordered us to cut off the heads of the men and hang them in the village palisades and to hang the women and the children in the palisades in the form of a cross. After seeing a Congolese person killed for the first time, a Danish missionary wrote, The soldier said, Don't take this too much to heart. They kill us if we don't bring the rubber. The commissioner has promised us if we have plenty of hands, he will shorten our service. So it's like this awful system that is 
from the top down. I can't get over the fact that they would force these workers to rape their um, wives and children. Mothers. Mothers. Mothers and children, I'm sorry. Another man is quoted as saying, The baskets of severed hands set down at the feet of the European post commanders became a symbol of the Congo Free State. The collection of hands became an end in itself. Forced public soldiers brought them to the stations in place of rubber. They even went out to harvest them instead of rubber. They became a sort of currency. They came to be used to make up for the shortfalls in the rubber quota. To replace it, the people who were demanded for the forced labor gangs and the forced public soldiers were paid their bonuses on the basis of how many hands they collected. A father stares at the hand and foot of his five-year-old daughter, severed as a punishment for having harvested too little rubber. In theory, each hand proved a killing. But in practice, to save ammunition, soldiers sometimes cheated by simply cutting off the hand and leaving the victim to either live or die. Several survivors later said that they had lived through the massacre by acting dead, not moving even while their hands were being cut off, and waiting until the soldiers left before seeking help. In some instances, a soldier would shorten his service term by bringing more hands than the other soldiers, which led to widespread mutilations and dismemberment. Because you have to remember, these soldiers are signed into a two-year contract. And their hope is to just get it done as quick as possible. So when they hear, if you bring extra, you might get out early, they all bring extra. Leopold II reportedly disapproved of dismemberment because it harmed his economic interests. He was quoted as saying, Cut off hands, that's idiotic. I'd cut off all the rest of them, but not the hands. That's the one thing I need to keep them working in the Congo. One practice used to force workers to collect rubber included taking the women and family members hostage. Leopold never proclaimed it an official policy, and free state authorities in Brussels emphatically denied that it was employed. Nevertheless, the administration supplied a manual to each station in the Congo, which included a guide on how to take hostages and coerce local chiefs. The hostages could be men, women, children, elders, or even the chiefs themselves. Every state and company station maintained a stockade for imprisoning hostages. The one company that I mentioned before, a beer, their agents would imprison the chief of any village who fell behind its quota. And in July of 1902, one post recorded that it held 44 chiefs in prison. These prisons were in poor condition. The posts at Bangadenga and Mopano each recorded death rates of 3 to 10 prisoners per day in 1899. Aside from rubber collection, violence in the free state chiefly occurred in connection with wars and rebellions. The presence of the rubber companies, such as a beer, exacerbated the effect of natural disasters such as famine and disease. A beer's tax collection system forced men out of the villages to collect rubber, which meant that there was no labor available to clear new fields for planting. Like I said before, if all the men who would normally do that kind of labor are gone, who does the labor? No one really. 
This, in turn, meant that the women had to continue to plant worn-out fields, resulting in lower yields, a problem aggravated by company sentries who stole crops and farm animals. Leopold sanctioned the creation of child colonies, in which orphaned Congolese would be kidnapped and sent to schools operated by Catholic missionaries, in which they would learn to work and be soldiers. These were the only schools that were funded by the Congo Free State. More than 50% of the children sent to the schools died of disease, and thousands more died in forced marches into the colonies. In one such march, 108 boys were sent over to a mission school and only 62 survived, eight of whom died a week later. So yeah, this is a brutal and awful, awful time for the people of this region. And there's also an epidemic of sleeping sickness at the time. In 1901, it is estimated that 500,000 Congolese succumbed to sleeping sickness. There are also diseases imported by Arab traders, European colonists, and African porters that ravaged the Congolese population. These included smallpox, dysentery, syphilis, gonorrhea, and swine flu, just to name a few. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, they bring it over and it's just like, boom. It is hard to truly say how many died without proper records. No, I was going to say, I can't even imagine because no one wants to actually admit, you know, it's like... I'm sorry, continue. You had the roundabout number, right? Yeah, so while there were no proper records kept of exact deaths in those days, the estimates are somewhere between 2 to 15 million. This essentially decimated their population. That is a big gap. And, like, that's... <sighs> because there's just no telling. Like I know. Like, that's what I was trying to say before. It's just, like, it's hard for me to put in words on how, like... People lie and they cheat and they steal. And if it's not documented on their land and all these people that went outsourced and did all this horrible acts on other colonies that were also like in the area, this this number could also be greater because it's nothing's ever really documented clearly, especially back then, especially when and this pe- is just one. This is the tale of one area yeah. and one imperialist endeavor. Yeah. And, and, and they, they want to lie because at the end of the day, they really don't want to tell their true numbers. Exactly. But eventually word of the humanitarian crisis in the Congo reached a number of countries who called for Belgium to deal with their shit. And in 1908, under the crush of international outrage... Belgium was compelled to take control of the colony from Leopold. And then things, you know, essentially started to get a bit better because, you know, people were watching and they had to be a little bit better. But those atrocities are unforgivable. And there are millions of young people with no hands or feet like the one man said that he looked at his daughter and you know saw that she was missing a hand and a foot and it wasn't because of something she had done but because he hadn't brought enough rubber in because eventually they were like oh yeah it doesn't really make sense to take the hands of the people who need to work that is the story of the red rubber system 
and the Congo Free State. Just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring.